like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be completing our look at, at Galactic Pot Healer. Um, again, my, my favorite of Philip Dick's novels, and the one I think is his best and most thematically relevant for us today. Um, this also brings us very nearly to the end of our series on the works of, of the 1960s. Um, we started, it seems, so long ago with... What was it? The Man in the High Castle. That was the first one we, we officially called a, a, a work of the 1960s. There were a couple works published in 1960 that I, that I threw in with the 50s stuff because it was really written in that time period. Um, so we have one more story after this, The Electric Ant. But that's, you know, after that we'll be, be right into the 1970s. And Dick's output really slowed after the 1960s. This period from like 1962 to you know, to 68, 69 is really his most prolific period. It extends a little bit in the 70s. He publishes two books in 1970. Um, then, then it really does slow down quite significantly. Um, after Galactic Pot Healer, he only published 10 more books in his lifetime. And then there's a bunch of books that would be published posthumously. And there's still like a few that are that come out once in a while. So um, there was still a lot of other stuff that, that came out after 1970, but not nearly at the clip that they came out in the 1960s. So we are kind of entering the end of an era, certainly when we get through Maze of Death and Our Friends from Full Locks 8. You know, then we're going to see a more sporadic output by, by Philip Dick. Not this, this... We won't be quite as rushed, I guess, in, or we won't feel quite so rushed in, in just the, the, nature, the huge amount of output that he, that he brought out in the 1960s. So... Um, yeah, um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to finish up my thoughts about this, this novel, chapters 13 through 16, go over the major events that happen in the story, and then as I always, as I, when I finish up these novels, I try to do some thematic summaries and give my overall impression of the book. Um, so where we left off, uh, Glimmin had been forced um, by Joe Fernwright's actions of going below the water to check out Heldskala. He, this kind of awakened the Black Cathedral and awakened the Black Glimmon, forcing the good Glimmon to confront the, his, his opposites in, in open combat. And where the chapter ended is the Black Glimmon was coming out of the water to face, face the Glimmon. And, th and that's where, right where we pick up in chapter 13 is with the Glimmon and the Black Glimmon fighting. And they plunge into the water and they fight underwater. So we don't really see the battle, but we do get occasional reports from the Glimmon. And he'd send these reports as kind of um, messages in a bottle, and it's kind of a cute way. There, there's a lot of odd ways that characters communicate, especially the Glimmon. And in general, the characters on Plowman's planet, this, this alien world in which all these people have been collected to raise this cathedral underwater, this health scala. Um, Glimmon talks to him through messages in the toilet, through traditional mail. He's talked to him through radio programs. He's talked to him in this way through bottles in the water. Other characters, so like even a pot, will talk to him through text bubbles, a like comic book text bubbles on a, on a pot. So there's 
Um, there's a really interesting theme here about just the way we communicate and why there's something special about calling someone out. You know, that if you if you are a, an entity like the Glimmer that has all these powers, why not, you know, sending messages this way versus another way is is just a matter of taste. It's, it's not about efficiency, really. So um, so we're going to get these kind of notes from from the battle and typically they're they're optimistic. Like the first message you got is, watch this place for hourly progress reports. Cordially, Glimmin. P.S. If I'm not up by morning, notify everyone that the project has been scrubbed. Get back to your own plan as the best you can. May, my best to all of you, G. So that's the kind of messages he, he sends. So Molly Yojez blames Joe for really forcing this situation and forcing Glimmin to act and forcing him to, if he dies, it's going to be Joe's fault. And this is actually what the Khalids predicted in their book. We have this book that, that predicts the future, collects all information. It's kind of like a big data predictor. I don't think I mentioned this before, but Dick had a story called The Holy Quarrel in which you had a, like a machine basically running the, what do I say, money, running the society, right? And it could predict threats that humans couldn't see because it, it could collect all the big data and it could analyze them, right? This is kind of another aspect of fate. We've seen precogs, for instance, that will choose which path they want to take based on which is the most probable, right? And big data can do that. The Kalans can do this. Glimmin is resisting this and resisting fate. But still, the message that they got is that most likely Joe's journey down below the water will lead to the Glimmin's death. Joe, though, he, he protects himself by saying he, he basically turns it around and blames fate sees that he doesn't have much of a choice. He says, he thinks, I have killed Glimmon, as the book foretold. The Kalan was right. The Kalans are always right. Glimmon is dying as we sit here on this boat, put pudding back to the sage area, staging area. Without me, without my descent into Mayor Nordstrom, he would be alive and functioning. They are right, it's my fault, as Glimmon himself said at the end, before the Black Glimmon rose from the sea to do battle with him. So many, many of the people who have gathered here and, um, you know, the, at the work site, the staging area begin to fear that they really have no hope and that Glimmon will be killed and then they'll be kind of helpless on this planet. Glimmon has been their protector, their employer, and they really have no way of making it. They certainly can't raise health scholar without Glimmon, so they'll really have no reason to be here. So they start to plan how to leave the planet. Joe, though, decides right away that he's going to stay behind. Essentially, he commits to fighting with the, the Glimmin. Almost all the rest go, though. Um, and it's just basically just Joe and Willis. Willis, the robot, staying behind, waiting for the elderly progress reports to see if the Glimmin will, will survive. Um, as chapter 13 ends, though, the Black Glimmin arises from the water, seemingly victorious in its, in its battle with, with the Glimmin. So in chapter 14, uh, by this point, the rest of the, the people have, have gone off to the ship, hoping to get off Plowman's planet. Joe, pretty much all alone, fears for his death and thinks of, of going below ocean and maybe seeing the Glimmin and maybe checking out his status, maybe helping if he can. But um, as he's thinking about doing this, he gets a bottle with, with good news. And it says, good news, I've routed the opposition and I'm presently recuperating. Joe then immediately thinks that maybe this is a fake and another bottle comes up almost instantly saying, the previous communique is not a forgery. I'm in good health and hope you're the same. Gee. P.S. I'll no longer be necessary for anyone to leave the planet. Notify them that I'm all right and tell them to stay in their living areas for the time being. 
Um, of course, they've already sort of made plans to, to leave, so Joe's going to have to act to get them to stay. And in fact, they're trying to take off, and, and there's a whole kind of off-screen conflict or, or scuffle between the Black Lemon and the ship that's trying to escape Plowman's planet. And they narrowly kind of ram into each other, and, and they're able to escape, though, before getting off the planet. And, they, and then Joe's able to talk them into staying behind. So there's a nice little chase scene, I guess, or near miss between the black lemon, who is still kind of a threat to these humans, but um, is apparently fleeing the scene because he can't handle, uh, he's been defeated by, by the glimmon. Now, of course, things are still uncertain here. There's not really clear evidence that the glimmon is going to survive. They just got to take his word for it. So he's still a bit anxious and he starts to think about if I'm going to stay here on Plowman's planet, what will it be like? What would it be like living in a fully deterministic world? A world in which everything has been decided in the book, everything is kind of listed out in fated ahead of time. He says, I'm not going to leave here, he said to himself, even if Glimmon dies. But what would this world be like without Glimmon, ruled by the Book of the Kalends, a mechanistic world, each day cranked up by the book, a world without freedom? The book will tell us every, each day what we're going to do, and we will do it. And eventually the book will tell us that we're going to die, and we will. Die, he thought. The book was wrong. It said what I found on the surface in the ocean would cause me to kill Glimmon, and it didn't. But Glimmon could still die. The prophecy could still come true. Two battles remain. The battle to destroy the Black Cathedral and the battle, the terrible task of lifting Hildskala to the surface. Glimmon could die during either. He could be dying right now and all our hopes with him. Now, around, you know, the others eventually do make their way back to the staging area and are able to tell Joe the story about how they evaded the Black, the black Glimmon. And the Black Glimmon is still at the spaceport, injured and possibly dying. So... We get more and more evidence that the Black Glimmon's kind of plunging out of the ocean and kind of chasing after to the spaceport was just as kind of death throws. It wasn't, um, now whether it dies or not, I think we don't, we don't actually see, but it strongly suggested that it's been defeated by the Glimmon. However, Glimmon may still die. The false metaphor is brought up once again, and we, we, we're, we're told by several characters this book some of the other aliens that are that are with joe and the others on this project that faust always dies and faust is like the glimmon in that they both are promethean they both are struggling against fate they both believe in action over kind of words and i, I think that's i haven't mentioned that before either but you have the Kalins who rest their power in words in language and glimmon who's trying to base his power in action Right. He, I mean, he does have words. He's able to use words and language, but he cares more about actually doing something than, than the words. And that's how the Kalins insist their power. Of course, in Faust, you have this idea of a Faust rejecting the biblical line, in the beginning was the word, replacing it with in the beginning was the deed. Right. This, if you remember way back to Time Out of Joint, 1950s novel, this phrase, in the beginning was the deed, was used as a pickup line by... By the hero of that that particular story the point here is that faust always dies and to a two promethean character is doomed to to failure and um so a lot of characters in the background a lot of the background characters here still sort of think that that the glimmon is doomed but then we also are told by the end i think this is molly who, who points this out maybe one of the other side characters that by calling the ship 
Fernwright already broke fate and he stopped fate because when Glimmon said call them and call them back, he calls them and this gives them enough time to prevent being struck by the Black Glimmon and not allow that ship to escape. So they all lived because of Fernwright's um, perfectly timed, you know, improbable action at that moment. So action worked to defeat fate and, and defeat what was pre-written in the, in the book. So chapter, uh, yeah, this is chapter 14. Chapter 14 ends with the Glimmon finally coming to the surface, but uh, quite hurt. All right, I think I missed something kind of actually important here is that one reason Glimmon is staying below the surface throughout chapter 14 is that he was dealing with the Black Cathedral. He was destroying the Black Cathedral like brick by brick. And this was a battle in its own right. It's, it's as much of a task as lifting Hilt Scala actually. And he did it alone. He did it without the help of others. So that's why he comes up so kind of weakened and, and, you know, be de defeated almost. So, but at the end of chapter 14, he's defeated the Black Lemon, he's defeated the Black Cathedral. So these, um, these uh, forces of entropy, these form-destroying um, entities in Mare Nordstrom have been defeated. So all that's really left is the raising of, of Health Scala. And Glimmon does not want to waste any time in doing this. As chapter 15 begins, we are told that the Glimmon seems to be dying. And he's, but he doesn't want to rest. He wants to immediately go to work of, of raising Hilt Scala. He wants to finish this all in one day, right? Like, um, you know, do it all in one day, like the, was it the ghosts of, uh, with Ebenezer Scrooge? Um, so he says, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to need all the skills. And here, we, we've been thinking all along that Glimmon has called all these people to Plowman's Planet because needs their various skills to help them with the raising and you know Joe's been given a lab these people have dredging equipment so it all seems to be just like a collection of technical expertise but this cooperation is taken to a new level when essentially Glimmon says that he needs their skills and he needs to like actually form a gestalt with them in order to to raise health scholar that's not just going to be their skills that are brought to work and their abilities they're actually going to become part of the glimmon and through him those skills will be manifest which will allow him to raise it it's a bit of a plot device that allows dick to finish the novel a little bit quickly in one dramatic scene but symbolically and thematically it's very important that throughout this novel we've been told again and again that the important task the, the task that can give meaning to our lives is often a collective one. It's not an individual effort. In fact, Fernwright's individual efforts have led him to despair for much of the novel. And, uh, you know, what was so intriguing about Glimmon's offer to him to come to Plowman's Planet to help him raise Health Scala was it was a cooperative effort. And that's what attracted a lot of people to it. So um, this gestalt idea is, is, of course, kind of pushed to an extreme in the idea that they're all going to be grouped together into the Glimmon. But there's something... But this idea has been there since the beginning of the novel, is what I'm trying to say. Now, still, at this point, it, it seems that the Glimmon is dying. Before they get to the gestalt stuff, it seems the Glimmon is dying. And Molly basically starts to give up again, fearing that the Glimmon will, will not make it. And he says, maybe Joe, maybe Joe tells Joe, maybe we should go to, um, go to her planet, right? To escape to her planet. But while they're on the dock, then Glimmon engulfs them, forms this gestalt with them for the first time. And there, the question comes up, like, what is this gestalt? It's a new experience for all of them. But the question is, is it, is it almost a form of, of death for them? That's what they begin to fear. 
Because they protest after they're being engulfed. They're saying, you're going to destroy us for your own purposes. You're going to make us, you're going to, we're going to lose our individuality in this greater entity of the Glimmon. And he says, you're not destroyed, you are engulfed. And Joe says, that's being destroyed. And Glimmon replies, no, it is not. Now, he doesn't really explain why it's not, but they experience it. And they experience their being part of the Glimmon. And they're able to hold on to their individuality. So it's not that something that Glimmon has to explain to them. It's something they experience directly. Um, so this, they, they're experiencing this gestalt now. And he asks them all for their help, their aid in the task, the final task, the thing they've been brought here to do, the raising of the health scholar. And the way he pleads with them is actually quite beautiful. He says, combine with me, add your skills, your capacities, your strengths, add everything to mine, Mr. Baldwin. You move matter at a distance, help me, help them. Miss Yojas, you understand the art of removing objects from coral incrustations. Do that now, unbind the coral reaches. Mr. Fernwright, you must knit the ceramic surface of the cathedral together. They are clay and you are the potter. Mr. Dak, you are a hydraulic engineer. No, Dak replied. I'm a graphic archaeologist. I deal in recovered art objects. I can identify them, catalog them, and estimate their cultural value. Yes, Glimmon thought. It is Mr. Luke who is the hydraulic engineer. I forgot the similarity of names. We must make our first run now, Glimmon told them. Told the parts of himself who possess separate identities. Probably we'll sink back down, but we'll try again as long as we live. Molly Yojas asked, Yes, he thought. We will try as long as we're alive until the last of us is dead. But that's not fair, Harper Baldwin thought. Glimmon thought, you've offered me everything you had. You yearned to help me when I lay dying. Now you're doing it. Be glad. Rejoice. He grasped the uncut floor of the cathedral with his many somatic extensions. Before, he thought, when the Black Glimmon and the Black Cathedral were down here, I could not take the risk of lifting with my own girth. Now I can. So it's a rather long conversation he has with all the different elements of his gestalt, but it's they all still have their abilities, they have their skills, their knowledge that they're contributing to this effort, and they're all needed. They all have a role to play. Their, their individuality is not being destroyed, and Glimmon keeps trying to, remind, to insert to them that this is a joyous moment for them. This is a moment that we're going to be fully human, despite being part of this gestalt. And I just need to remind you once again that Dick has been doing this, getting to this point for a long time. Everything from the empathy box to the Utiti cult to Half-Life, the experience people had in Half-Life, uh, to many other examples in his, his work, even back to Eye in the Sky. He's been inching, inching towards this statement that we find our meaning in in cooperation and, and collectivity, right? And I think this is so important in our day and age because our work is collective. As much as we might want to think about our individual skills and our efforts and how we make things on our own, we don't make anything on our own anymore. Everything is a collective effort, you know, even if we don't see the people who do it, right? I, I make a cup of tea, right? That The labor of, of hundreds of people has been part of that. The farmers, the, the, law, the longshoremen and the merchant seaman who carried that, that tea to me, the, the person who made the cup, the pot, the people who got the natural gas that heats the stove, everything is, is collective. There's no individual anymore. And that's true in art, it's true in science, it's true in basically every element of life. So we are part of this gestalt. And that's where we're going to be productive and creative through the works, with the works of other people collectively. Now, eventually they start to talk to him about, you know, taking a rest first. He thinks, they think, you know, he's too, 
too tired. And Glimmin is convinced. And Glimmin is not an autocrat. He's he's essentially a Democrat here. And he listens to them. And he listens to the majority. And he says, okay, I'll try again after I've rested. So they he lets them go. They leave the Gestalt. And later on, after they go back to their rooms, Joe says he's decided to stay. He, he's decided he wants to prove fate wrong and he wants to prove the book wrong. So he decides to commit to the struggle against fate entirely. And this is a major moment for him. Dick writes, this is actually a Joe's statement, but the book was almost right, he said. Obviously, the Kalins played the percentages. Generally, in the long run, they were correct. But in given instances such as this, they were wrong. And this was important. This had to do with Glimmon's literal physical death and the literal physical raising of Held Scala. And in relation to this, final events such as the planet falling back into the sun from which it arisen did not really matter. We could add to this, of course, the that we die, right? Does that matter? It doesn't it doesn't matter, right? As long as we make meaning in our world through some kind of creative act. These acts were too remote. Or sorry, these events were too remote. In the final analysis, the Kalins might be correct. Their prophecies had to do with the cosmic trends, such as the law of thermodynamics and terminal entropy. And of course, Glimmon would eventually die, and so would he himself. So would they all. But in the here and now, Heldskala waited for Glimmon to recover. And he would. And the cathedral would come up from the water as Glimmon planned. And so that's, the, that's his final kind of statement in his, that he's going to stay and he's going to commit to the struggle against fate and the Kalins and... And then at this point, they're just waiting for Glimmon to, to call them up. And so chapter 16, the final chapter of the book, uh, there's only about 10 pages left in the whole story. It's about eight or nine days later, Glimmon returns with his, his kind of final offer to them. He's fully recovered. And he says, we're going to go do the job. We're going to raise Hulskala now. We're going to have to re-enter the Gestalt and go back underwater and do this. The group puts a limit on how long they will stay part of it. They put a limit of two hours on the Glimmon, but he promises to only take a half an hour, that they won't have to, but he, uh, he, he, he backs this limit that they put on him. Again, showing he's not an autocrat, that when you're part of the Gestalt, you know, it's, not just a, it's not just the leader doing it, it's everyone contributing, everyone being part of that mission. So the Gestalt starts to form and they go down into the water, they start to do the job. And a fog thing begins to kind of get in their way. He's not trying to stop them though. It just warns Glimmon that things are gonna change if he raises the, the, the cathedral. He says specifically, if you raise Helskala from out of the depths to dry land, you'll bring to life the worship of Amalita and indirectly Boreal. Are you prepared for that? Glimmon says, yes. And the fog thing, which are like old, dominant species on the planet who have had their their time in the sun has passed as Glimmons will now Glimmons says you know I understand I'll no longer be the dominant species on the planet and and it will be someone else that's a small price to pay for this achievement so um, during the actual process of raising Helskala Glimmon which apparently is hermaphroditic turns into a female now, of course somehow the symbolism of creating life it needs to be female to do that and they raise it up and it's it's a nice little scene where they're finally able to raise it up although it's a quick it's a quick climax and it takes place just a few pages from the end of the story at this point glimmon offers them all to stay as part of the gestalt after raising Helskala. and that he basically says each of you get to vote you stay as part of me and have a new experience and we'll have a new existence as a as a new entity 
or you can leave and stay on as an individual. Only two creatures leave. Um, one is Joe and one is a gastropod. I think we met that gastropod earlier in the novel, but there's a lot of these kind of background aliens, many of whom look weird and, and are just kind of hanging out back there. Um, the gastropod stays as well. And of course, Joe's a little bothered that his girlfriend, Molly Yoja, stays in, in Glimmen, but or just stays in the Gestalt. It's something beyond Glimmen now because it is a, a, a new entity made up with these different individualities. But they decide to go on to the hotel. They start walking back to the hotel. It's like a 50-mile walk. And they chit-chat on the way. And Joe has to figure out what to do. And he, the gastropod gives him the idea. He says, why don't you stop healing pots? Why don't you start making pots? Why don't you take it to the next step? You have the skill. Why don't you try to be a pot healer instead of, or a pot maker instead of just a pot healer? So he <clears throat> decides to do that. So... Sometime later, he's in his workshop, and he's got all the, the kilns and all the tools and all the materials he needed. This was the workshop he was going to use to, you know, to fix pots for the raising of Scala. But now he's going to go to work with making a pot. He forms one, and here's how the book ends. He puts, the, he puts it in the kiln. The kiln's done. The pot's done. He looks at it. With an so this is the final words. With an asbestos, asbestos glove, he trembling reached into the still hot kiln and brought out the tall, now blue and white pot, his first pot. Taking it to the table, under direct light, he set it down and took a good look at it. He professionally appraised its artistic worth. He appraised what he had done and with it what he would do, what later pots would be like, the future of them lying before him, and his justification in a sense for leaving Glimmen and all the others. Molly most of all, Molly whom he loved. Um, but anyways, I choose to read this part of this ending optimistically and that it will his work will get better. It's he's not doomed to make bad pots. He, he's shown before that fate can be contested and challenged. And, and that's where I'm going to put my bets that Joe Fernwright's second pot won't be bad, won't be off or will be just a little bit better. And eventually he will be able to pursue his a fully creative life and and continue to to perhaps exist on Plowman's planet and, and see see if the Callans were right at the end of the day or not, or see if the the, the struggle against fate, you know, works, you know, get, leads to leads to positive results. So, anyways, that's that's Galactic Pot Healer. Um, again, I think one of the most meaningful novels that that Dick wrote, especially because it takes on this theme of of work so clearly. It takes on the question of how we can find meaning in in life when we don't have adequate employment when maybe the economy doesn't need us anymore. That's where we started out. Um, Dick doesn't quite escape work as a solution. I mean, he finds still Fernwright has to have a project and that project has to be kind of connected to his craft. And, you know, but I don't think it necessarily has to be, you know, remunerative labor, remunerative labor that, that we go to. It might be many other things we can find meaning in life through. So I, I just think the overall story that we cannot let that which has come before us be that which comes is in front of us is and even if all the signs are pointing to despair and and alienation it doesn't mean we we stop with the effort right even if we're that spider in the cup right we still make the most beautiful web we can i guess we still got to find meaning um, somewhere 
And I, I think that's the overall message here, and I think it's a very uh, important one. I think it sums up a lot of what Dick is trying to do in the 1960s. It's a nice, it's actually a nice novel, I think, to close up this, this series on the novels of 1960 with. Oh, sorry about that. My, the sound is kind of getting goofy again. I, I, um, I think it's better now. Um, but anyways, the themes of this book, let's, let me finish up um, while my microphone is holding, holding together. Uh, the themes of the work, the number one theme obviously is work and meaning and how we find meaning uh, through our work, through our craft, through some kind of skill, through actually being creative. I, I think that's what Dick wants to say. And a lot of his fear of automation has to do with just the banality of, of a world in which all all creative work is done by robots or machines or something. In this in this novel, even on Plowman's Planet, we have robots who write books. The Callens are kind of big data collectors that that, that just kind of publish and um, chronologies, chronicles, not really true history. Uh, back on Earth, it's it's miserable too, where basically everything is automated and there's no real uh, employment for people. So Dick doesn't think we can find much meaning outside of work. And, and this novel uh, certainly develops the theme better than any other of his, his stories. Um, the other big theme we have here then is fate, probability, and, and resistance, and, and the importance of resisting fate. Um, yeah, so many of Dick's characters are fated, so many are facing institutions and powers that are overbearing, especially in his later novels, as we're going to see in the 70s and, and 80s, we're going to have many, many characters who are facing very, very bleak futures, uh, what he calls the Black Iron Prison. Um, but if we take his message from 1969 to heart, it's that resistance is still has to be a part of that. We cannot give in to fate. We cannot give in to the deterministic, um, mechanistic universe and, and the probabilistic universe. That's not going to get us where we need to go. Uh, it's not going to find us meaning. This is going to only lead to despair and alienation. Two of the three stigmatas. Um, we got a lot here on religious dualism. Dick has always been interested in religious dualism. Um, he's going to play with another idea of religion in, in the maze of death, but we're reminded a lot, uh, I think, of of like the, even the cosmic puppets. Um, you know, this idea of a good deity and an evil deity. Um, more broadly, Dick is very fascinated with this idea of like a creative God and the, the form destroying God. I think this comes, there's some of this in Hinduism, obviously with uh, the cycles of death and rebirth and destruction and creation. Um, Dick sees it maybe a little bit differently, but there's, there's always this force of entropy working against the creative force. And, and part of how we do find meaning in, in life is to struggle against entropy, whether it's Kipple or the form destroyer or just entropy. However, it's described, it's, it's the major antagonist in so many of his works. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, how religious dualism is framed in this, this, this book. Next, we have uh, state power. Uh, obviously, the first few chapters set on Earth, we see many, many examples of state authority and regulation, even to the level of people's dreams. The police, you, you call in an inquiry into the bank, the police record it, find out, follow up you know, to investigate your house. It's a total police state. It's the worst possible police state we can imagine, actually. It's um, amazingly bleak in its portrayal of, of, of society. Um, every aspect of people's lives is, is, is watched. And I think the most fearful part of this is that you can't even, you can't even escape your dreams, right? The dreams are when they give you the anodyne 
that lets you get through the day, where makes you the, that anodyne is that you feel you're important for while you're sleeping, not while you're li live because you're in a cubicle without anything meaningful to do. Um, another one I wrote down here is automation. Uh, that just ties up with work. It, it doesn't really I don't just need to say much more about this, but this is a post-work environment, and we have a craftsman who doesn't need to work, and I think that's the great tragedy of Joseph Fernwright, at least until he finds meaning in a new setting with a, in a new project. Um, another theme, and this is not something Dick does a lot with, I think, expl explicitly. He did write a short story that, that kind of speaks to this, and that is language and, and puns. And in, he, he wrote an interesting um, story called The Eyes Have It back in the 50s. And basically, it's, a, it's what would happen if we take all our metaphors, all the metaphors in our language, and take them literally... If we do that, you know, that doesn't make sense in most mainstream novels, but in a science fiction novel, it can make sense, right? Like, um, she talked his head off. That, that statement, of course, is, is metaphoric in 99.9% of, .9 of, of times it's written down, right? But in a science fiction novel, that could perhaps be, you know, taken literally. Um, that, that kind of, that's re-studied here in like the language game that they play, where they'll translate a name of a book into Japanese and then retranslate it into English. And then you end up with like literal translations of metaphoric ideas. And then the challenge is then to reconstruct what the original title was. Uh, we have the game. We also have bilingual people who are also have difficulty with puns and metaphoric speech. And we have puns played with throughout the novel. So I don't know where these things lead to any clear theme. I just think Dick has been thinking a lot, was thinking a lot about language and it a lot of different parallels in the use of language throughout the novel. I think in, by and large it's kind of presented as a rather banal way to find meaning is to play these language games compared to the raising of Holt Scala. But it's, it certainly gives Joe Fernwright a lot of pleasure to do it. It gave him some meaning back on Earth. Tied to the game, I, I want to just mention the internet here because you know we don't obviously don't have the internet in this particular novel, but we do have the image of people in cubicles in a bullshit job, you know, calling people up playing games. I mean, that is the equivalent now of people playing around on Facebook or playing Candy Crush or whatever on their, their iPhones. Um, we have a bit of an internet here where people from all over the world communicate and share messages and talk back and forth to each other. So it's, a, it's I don't want to say he predicts the internet here, but he predicts how people in an office where they're not really needed, where they have to sit there for eight hours with nothing to do, how they'll waste their time. Marriage, uh, marriage is a theme in pretty much all of Dick's novels, so I don't know how much more we have to say about it, but we have another undead marriage where Joel Fernwright is divorced, but his wife still has a big burden on him and on his memory. Uh, he can't really escape her. He finally is able to escape room by leaving the planet and joining up with the Glimmon, and he meets Molly Yojes. He loses her, though, uh, to the Gestalt, so it's not happily ever after, but he does have a nice relationship with her for a few days anyways. Um, we got the theme of the Gestalt versus the individual. I said it back in the first episode that I think this particular novel provides, it has, uh, it provides a solution to all three of Palmer Eldridge's The Stigmata despair, blurred reality, and alienation. But it provides solutions that are both individual and, and collective, right? And at the end, when Joe Fernwright decides to stay behind, he's pursuing an individual struggle 
for meaning. Many others choose the collective. They're both choices, right? They're both paths. And Joe was part of both. Joe was part of the Gestalt for a while. So both can be creative. It's not one or the other. I would argue, though, that in our economy, it's more likely that meaning is going to be found in some kind of collective shared act. Um, but um, nonetheless, there's both are given in this book. And it's not saying that it has to be the Gestalt. He does open up the door for, for choice here. And then I, I think this is a very diverse novel. I, I think I like that. Now, a lot of the characters that present diversity are kind of stock. Alien, stock character aliens are just in the backdrop for humor. A lot of them are portrayed in very preposterous ways, like a gastropod or weird kind of arachnid creatures or whatever. Uh, but, but nevertheless, we're given a diverse set of characters, more diverse than I think in any other of his stories, at least in terms of, of alien representation. He, he's not the biggest fan of writing aliens, I think. I mean, from time to time, he has aliens. Like, now wait for last year, he has the Starmen and the, the Reegs. But it's more common he's got a human, humans, you know, doing with things. Um, but here we got a nice... The aliens aren't enemies. They're all basically able to work together on a project. It's, it's kind of a... The theme here of diversity is, is, is there, it seems to me. So um, that does it. That's my thoughts on Galactic Popular. Um, yeah, great novel. Um, so I urge you to read it. I, I do recommend this one for, for everyone, not just Philip K. Dick fans. But if you're a Philip K. Dick fan and you haven't read Galactic Pod Healer, I really think you have to, to do it and, and think about it and grapple with what he's trying to say in this, this book. Um, so that's going to do it for uh, Galactic Pod Healer. Um, please leave your own thoughts about the novel below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. In the next episode, we'll look at The Electric Ant, which will be the final work uh, we're going to look at in the, this series of 1960s novels. Then we'll, we'll jump into the 1970s with, with the maze of death, a maze of death, not the, a maze of death. So um, I look forward to sharing my thoughts about that book with you. It's a very different um, cup of tea. It's not anything like Galactic Potular. It's, it's actually, while this one is very optimistic, the maze of death is probably his bleakest uh, novel. So uh, with that, I'll, I'll, I'll sign off. Uh, thanks as always for listening. You must search till you find the bird. You will find peace and contentment forever if you will.